This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows. We're enjoying it, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our cardinal sin in 2009-2010 of not paying attention to state and local elections has borne out and we are now paying the consequences of that. As we have seen between the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests and a lot of the issues that we care about, the people who really make a difference are our local elected officials. There is so much good that can happen when you elect good people. I do think that there's still a chance to turn it around and that chance is happening today. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Amanda Littman, co-founder and co-executive director of Run For Something, which recruits and supports young, diverse progressives running for down-ballot office. She's also the host of the Run For Something podcast. We discuss step-by-step how they go about their mission, why local and state offices are so important, and how you can get involved in our democracy. One of the goals when Run For Something was founded in 2017 was to build a bench of progressive candidates. And when we interviewed her, she had amazing news to share. We are up to 515 young local elected officials across 46 states. Those young local electeds are more than half women, more than half people of color. Um, About 10% of them are between the ages of 18 and 24. Another third are between the ages of 25 and 30, which I think is really cool. Uh, About a third are specifically women of color. Uh, About 11% are specifically LGBTQIA plus folks of color. They're amazing. And they are already running for and winning higher office four and a half years in. We have Malcolm Kenyatta, a Pennsylvania State House Rep, who's currently running for United States Senate. Jevin Hodge, who we worked with in Arizona in 2020 for a county board seat, is now running for Congress. Uh, We have a number of others who are moving from State House to State Senate or school board to city council or city council to state house. Um, So it's working. It's working. And it's really cool to see in action and to watch as these folks really make a difference in people's lives. That's super exciting. So how do you go about recruiting or endorsing candidates? So recruitment looks a lot like this. It's talking to groups of people or doing media or tweeting or posting on Facebook or running ads or going onto college campuses or having happy hours or hosting National Run for Office Day, our big holiday, in which we tell people you should run for office. And if you're listening to this podcast, you are the kind of person who should run for office. Um, Run for Something specifically works with people ages 18 to 40 running for local office, so state house, state senate, or below. So anything from city council to library board to school board to coroner to water board to American River Flood Control District Trust you name it. If it's local, we will help you. And we're really looking for people who've never run for office before. Our services are for folks who have always thought, maybe there's a role for me here, but I don't even know where to begin. We are where you begin. People sign up on our website. You join a conference call. You have a one-on-one with one of our volunteers in which we learn a little bit more about you and help you get the initial resources that you need from our network. And then you're part of our support pipeline. And that includes everything from 
trainings and webinars, guides on how to file to get on the ballot in all 50 states, access to our mentorship network, we're there to help you for free, and then access to our endorsement application. We want to know your campaign plan, your budget, your win number, how you're going to get from where you are all the way through to election day. We endorse about half the people who apply, and those folks have one-on-ones with our regional directors. Those are the people we raise money for, we get volunteers for. Those are the folks we recommend to other organizations to endorse and to reporters who are looking to write stories. And those are the people who get connected to alumni for direct one-on-one. So it's a real soup to nuts, full service, wraparound, one part coach, one part consultant, one part therapist system and in which we're really here to help people who've never done this before. So when you say you endorse about half the people who apply, the other half, they don't end up branding for office or how does that work? I, I just wasn't clear on that. Of course. So the people who apply for our endorsement are folks who are already running and who maybe don't meet our criteria of being in a a run for something candidate. So whether that's because of their age or the level of office they're running for, or usually more likely it's either because they don't align with the values that run for something aligns with, which are basic progressive values, or they're not running a strong campaign. And by that, we mean one that is deeply rooted in community, focused on grassroots organizing, focused on voter contact, in which they're advocating for a positive vision for their community. We are especially interested and eager to help folks who don't meet the traditional quote unquote definition of politician, which historically has meant rich old white men. So we are very much looking to lend our time and our efforts to women, people of color, um, LGBTQIO folk, IA folks, people with disabilities, people from rural communities, people who are artists and scientists and not independently wealthy billionaires who we think really we need more of in office. So once you are endorsing someone, what is the number one piece of advice you give to them? I would say the number one thing we tell people is that you don't get the help you don't ask for. Um, And that part of your job as a candidate is to ask for as much help as you could possibly imagine and then some, and that you will be surprised at who says yes and disappointed at who says no. But either way, no one is going to volunteer for you if you don't give them an entry point. No one's going to give you money just like magic. There is no shortcut here. You have to do the work. You have to make the ask and get ready to deal with a lot of rejection. And remember that it's not personal. It's not about you. The no's are not about you and the yeses are not about you. It's about what you are trying to build as well as where people are in their their personal lives and their circumstances. You don't get what you don't ask for. So get ready to be doing a whole lot of solicitations. (laughs) (laughs) That's good advice. I heard once that asking puts you in a place of receiving. So, you know, after I heard that, I I asked for a lot of things, (laughs) you know, because I felt like, oh, yeah, you're right. If you don't ask it, you don't get definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. um, one of your biggest successes, of course, is getting younger people elected into office, like you said. But how has this class of alumni impact the success on recruiting more younger, diverse candidates? You know, one of the things that we heard after 2017 when we worked with Danica Rome in Virginia, Danica was the first openly trans state lawmaker in the country. We got a bunch of press for working with her. And all of a sudden, we started hearing from dozens of trans people who reached out to say, hey, I heard that you worked with someone like me. I have never seen someone like me running for office before. Can you help me too? 
Um, one of those folks was Brianna Titone, who became the first openly trans lawmaker in Colorado. The next was Taylor Small, who became the first openly trans lawmaker in Vermont, and Sarah McBride, the first openly trans lawmaker in Delaware, and countless others. It's really cool because it compounds on itself. And we see that both in terms of like race, class, gender identity, sexual orientation, as well as Back in 2017, when we worked with Jennifer Carroll Foy running for delegate and she gave birth to twins during her campaign, Erin uh, Sweener, a state house rep in Texas, told me during our uh, interview for the Run for Something podcast that she would not have been able to continue her run for Texas state house to flip a seat um, when she found out she was pregnant if she hadn't seen Jennifer do it first. She told me specifically, if Jennifer can do it with two babies, I can do it with one. And I think it's pretty common that we've heard that, especially from college students who've run looking to previous ones who've done it before. You know, you can't be what you can't see. Someone goes first, but first implies that there will be a second and a third and a fourth and many more to come. That's terrific. So you focus on local and state elections because that's where all the action is to solve the problems that plague us on a daily basis. And that's never been more evident than during the depths of the pandemic. In fact, in your strategic plan for 21 and 22, you're going to double down on local races. Why is it more important than ever now to run for office in local races? Well, part of it is the positive, <laughs> is the impact that these elections can have on people's lives. As we have seen between the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests and a lot of the issues that we care about, the people who really make a difference are our local elected officials. You know, if you think about schools opening and closing, that's school boards. If you think about what our kids are learning, that's education officials. If you think about police brutality and violence against Black folks in our communities, that's often city council or municipal government. Even things like election administration, that's county clerks, that's county uh, judges or executives, that's state legislatures. There is so much good that can happen when you elect good people. And I will say these local positions, especially the ones that aren't already gerrymandered, are much easier for Democrats to win because the problems are more tangible and more practical. And it's often less infused with partisanship. Not always. And sometimes they can get a little nasty, but it's definitely much easier to win in a district that is shaped by like real life geography as opposed to a partisan map drawing process. The negative side here is that if good progressives don't run for these local offices, we know that the worst parts of the Republican Party have been and continue to invest in local elections. You know, everyone from Michael Flynn encouraging Trump supporters and MAGA folks to run for local government to QAnon, of which dozens of QAnon members have run for and won local leadership positions, or the more than 500 state and local uh, Republicans who participated in or enabled the insurrection on January 6th in some way, this is who their party is. And when they run for and win local office, they get credibility and have the resume to run for and win higher office. You don't get Congressman Matt Gates without getting state House Rep Matt Gates first. Um, similarly, you don't get Senator Marco Rubio without state House Rep Marco Rubio, Florida being a prime example of some of the swampiest. But there's many others. Um, many of whom got their start in local leadership and used that to climb their way up the ladder into federal power. So if you don't want to do it because of the difference you can make in your community, which you should, you should run because you want to do something, not just because you want to be something. Do it because if you don't, the worst possible people almost certainly will. For sure. If you're not in there, somebody else will fill that spot in the public sphere. So you mentioned the Republicans have been playing the long game, basically, in building this deep bench of people in state offices. How come the Democratic Party didn't do that? 
Oh, it's an existential question. We'd have to trace it back to 2008. So in 2008, we elect Barack Obama president. And Barack Obama pretty specifically and has said now in interviews in the last couple of years that once he took office, he did not really care about the Democratic Party's infrastructure. He has said, I was focused on the recession, on the, the war, the you know any number of things that come in front of the president's plate every day. And focusing on Democratic Party infrastructure just wasn't a top priority for him. And I think he also brought a lot of people into the Democratic Party, not because he was a Democrat, but because he was who he was, a once in a generation political talent. Fast forward a little bit to 2009, 2010, Barack Obama has not really engaged in the Democratic Party. Karl Rove writes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that says, we're going to focus on these specific state House and Senate races in order to control the maps after the redistricting process in 2010. Once we do so, we will be able to win back Congress and we will control it for a decade. Democrats looked at that and said, cool, good luck. Instead of being, oh my God, this is a huge crisis. We need to spend exponentially more time and money and effort winning state legislative elections too. So in 2010, Democrats lost something like 600 state legislatives. Um, Republicans then used their control in state chambers after 2010 to redraw the maps, which allowed the Republicans to retake Congress. And they held it through 2018. Meanwhile, throughout the country, uh, Republican state legislatures continue to use their power to make it harder for Democratic voters to show up at the polls with everything from voter ID laws, which we know impacted more than 300,000 voters in Wisconsin in 2016, to the kind of horrific shit we've seen in Georgia and Texas. They used their power to ensure they could hold more power. Fast forward, we hit 2020, <laughs> in which it was another redistricting year. And even while Democrats spent a record amount of money on state legislative races relative to the past, we still saw in the DLCC, which raised uh, about 60 million, 50 million, the committee that focuses on state legislative elections, that's still barely half of what one Senate race, one losing Senate race in Kentucky raised in 2020. And even still, some of the state House and state Senate races, you know, we saw in Texas raised 50% of their budget in the final two weeks of the election. When it's really too late, one voters are already voting, but it's really too late for that kind of huge flux of money to make a meaningful impact when you're trying to flip a district. What that culminated in is we are now in 2021, which Democrats control fewer state House chambers than we did a year ago, or state House and Senate chambers, in which Republicans have passed more voter suppression laws than ever before. They've introduced, I believe the last number I saw was more than 400 voter suppression laws um, across the country. They've passed dozens of them in places like Ohio and Florida and Texas and Georgia and Iowa and more to come. And they're starting to uh, allow themselves the power to decertify or not certify or subvert elections through taking away control from local election authorities, even in places where Democrats might control those local election authorities. That's a long way of saying that our cardinal sin in 2009-2010 of not paying attention to state and local elections has borne out and we are now paying the consequences of that. I do think that there's still a chance to turn it around and that chance is happening today. The work started six months ago. I don't want to be alarmist. I don't want to you know, be hyperbolic, but I think we are at an existential crisis for democracy. If we do not invest in state and local elections over the next 18 months in a really meaningful and impactful way, and we start now, there is a pretty good chance that by 2024, we will not have fair and free elections anymore. Not to scare you, just the facts. <laughs> no, no, I hear you. I agree with you 100%. Aside from you, who else is doing this urgent work to invest in a bench and also 
to try and reverse some of these laws, if that's even possible, or to block them from even taking effect? Great question. So there's a couple of different avenues you can go about here. The team over at Indivisible is doing amazing work at trying to kill the filibuster and get voting rights legislation passed on a national level, which I don't know. We'll see. But they're doing incredible work. So joining your local Indivisible chapters is always a good path into this. Fair Fight Action and Democracy Docket are both fighting both in the courts and Fair Fight Action is doing organizing work. Um, Democracy Docket is Mark Elias's group. They're doing basically suing every Republican state legislature at this point, trying to mitigate some of the harm done by Republican state legislatures. Um, and then when you think about state and local politics, run for something is obviously a great place to go. The DLCC does great work. Sister District focuses on really top target races. Swing Left does some work around this, as well as, and I know it's not cool to say, but focusing on state parties can be really meaningful, some states more so than others, but it's really a good place to go. And the thing that I always encourage folks is take half of your budget, if you have like an allocated amount that you want to give for political causes, split, take half for candidates and really think locally. Think about your state house, state senate, or city council. And I mean like your locally, but also other local elections, but think small because your small dollar donations will have a big impact on these tiny budgets. The other half, set up recurring donations to organizations that exist beyond election day. Again, run for something is a great option, but really dealer's choice. I would encourage anything that focuses on young people or communities of color, because we know it takes longer and yields a higher impact when we focus on these particular subsets of democratic voters. All good advice. Before we continue our conversation with Amanda Littman, I want to thank The Jordan Harbinger Show. It covers a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people from athletes, authors, scientists, to CEOs, government officials, and FBI agents. In one recent episode, he spoke to Rachel Neuer, the author of a book about the world of wildlife trafficking you'll learn not only what drives the global demand for endangered wildlife, but also what you can do about it. Jordan's goal is to make you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening instead of letting someone else tell you what to think. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So what have you discovered to be the most impactful thing that Run for Something has done or does on a regular basis to help candidates get elected? You know, I think part of it is just being there for them. What we have heard from candidates over the years of doing this work and the research that we have done, the debriefs and qualitative and quantitative surveys we've done, is that for the many candidates, especially non-traditional quote-unquote candidates, they don't feel like they belong. Like they're trying to enter a system that wasn't built for people like them. And more often than not, they get told no over and over again. And that message of you don't belong here, you're not supposed to be doing this, gets repeated. What our endorsement does is say, yes, you belong. Yes, you're doing a good job. Yes, you can do this. And we are here to help you. And we have heard from, I don't know, I think the 2018 survey, like, 70% of candidates told us that our, the value of our endorsement was not the money. It was the validation that they're doing the right thing. 
It set them up to feel like a candidate. It was the moment where they went from person running for office to person who's like embracing the psychological identity and could go into that debate knowing that they had a team by their side. The other thing we've heard and 60% of candidates have told us is that being able to talk to someone else running for office who's in a similar life circumstance has been their greatest source of resiliency. So our alumni program, our mentorship program, our community building work is really valuable. And you can't put a price tag on that. You know, I, I really do believe like we should ask everyone to run for office, but I don't ever want to convince someone to do this. I don't want to drag them into this kicking and screaming because running for office is terrible. It's really hard. Like you work really hard, you sacrifice a lot. You have to put your friends and family and your personal life on the line. You have to be very public. You have to ask people for money all the time. It's terrible. And it's an incredibly meaningful way to make a difference. Sarah McBride once said in an interview I did with her, if you want to fall in love with your community, run for office. It is so powerful but you gotta really wanna do it for your own reasons. You gotta wanna do it because you wanna solve a problem. So being able to connect to folks who share that passion and who understand how hard it is and how incredible it is at the same time is really, really meaningful for our folks. Wow, I want to meet some of your candidates. These people really, like you said, they put everything on the line. They're very public about it. And you really expose who you are as a human when you run for office. So now that we are in 21 and uh, with the landscape that you have described just now with voter suppression, et cetera, et cetera, how has your thinking evolved about elections and democracy? And um, how has your strategy evolved? That's a really good question. I think we are still continuing our focus on local elections. We're still working on state ledge races. It's just in the past, about 60% of our candidates have been state legislatures. Moving forward, we're looking for about 60% to 70% being local and the remainder being state ledge. Um, so it's not to say we're not paying attention there. We just found that state ledge candidates do have a lot of support systems set up for them, especially in some of these top target races. That's not true for city council or school board or library board races. So we want it to be where we could be the biggest value add. I will say one of the Things that we have been really trying to hammer home for people is that basically on every issue you care about, the most direct and meaningful way to make a difference for it is to run for it and support local campaigns. I think the conversation right now around critical race theory and what we're teaching in our classrooms, you know, like it's total weaponization of education. It's trying for Republicans to build a foundation of like white supremacy from the classrooms on out. It's another proof point of why it really matters who we're running for and and putting out there for these kinds of positions because it's something you don't care about until it's a crisis. And by the time the crisis hits, it's too late to make a difference. So I think we're just trying to make sure to hammer home, like Joe Biden is president. We control the House and Senate for now. Job's not over. Complacency is not the game here. And in fact, if we repeat the same mistakes of 2009, 2010, if we say job's over, I'm moving on with my life, we will set ourselves up for a true disaster in slow motion. Well, I don't know whether it's slow motion. I feel like it's happening pretty fast. I mean, you know, the fact yeah. that we couldn't even get a commission for an investigation on January 6th, it, it tells us so much. In fact, you say, of course, and I agree that Trump may not be on the ballot, but Trumpism is. So now that Trump has lost, how has it changed the way that you keep people engaged? Well, fortunately, Republican Party continues to be absolute nightmares. So there's more... <laughs> 
ammunition, more material than we ever could have imagined in terms of how do we excite people or get them to participate. A thing I'm really proud of is that January 2021 was our best recruitment month yet. It's unfortunate that it had to come in part because of the insurrection, but also because of the wins in Georgia and also because of seeing Kamala Harris and Joe Biden be sworn in, I think especially Vice President Harris, really inspired people to see what is possible in leadership. But 2021 as a whole is on track to be our best recruitment year yet. That tells me that it wasn't about Trump. It was about solving problems. But to really see that in action this year, to see the number of people who have decided that now is the time for them to lead, it's just, it's so inspiring. It's so inspiring. Indeed. So tell us a little bit about how your winning candidates have made governance better. Like, why is it now that they're in office that our government works better? Oh, man, I could do stories for hours. A couple of my favorites here in New York, we worked with a whole bunch of the anti-IDC candidates back when we were trying to get rid of the IDC. That includes Senator Alessandro Biagi, and Senator Zellner Myrie, Senator Jessica Ramos, and a number of others. Zellner, I'm really proud of. I get to vote for him. I lived in his neighborhood during that election. Is the reason we have early voting in New York now. Awesome. Jessica Ramos has been focusing on wage theft around unexploited workers. So here in New York, amazing. And we, in fact, have more than 36 New York City Council candidates on the ballot in a couple of weeks who I am really excited for. But if you look in other states, Representative Anna Eskimani down in Florida, she and her office single handedly helped more than 30,000 Floridians access unemployment insurance in spite of a intentionally broken system. In Texas, State Rep. James Tallarico helped pass legislation to lower the price of insulin in Texas. Judge Lena Hidalgo, Harris County Executive or Houston, is 10x the election administration budget in Houston, making sure that voters could show up at the polls and do 24-hour voting, even when the governor and the Republican state legislature were trying to keep people from showing up and making their voices heard. In Wisconsin, Francesca Hong, a member of the state assembly, helped get the first ever declaration of Asian American Desi and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in Wisconsin, which feels like a small thing, but is actually really meaningful when it's a Republican-controlled state legislature and we know how, candidly, how racist some of these Republican state legislatures can be. Yeah, that's amazing. It's cool. It's amazing. There are a lot of really great things, especially, I think, Lena Hidalgo in making really voting accessible in the way that she did. I think it's remarkable how well the election of 2020 was pulled off. People voted in record numbers despite the pandemic. And I think we are not we're not congratulating ourselves <laughs> enough for that, no matter who you voted for. The fact that you turned up, I think, is pretty impressive. As an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to strengthen government and help improve the system, aside from running for office? Vote in local elections. I think it's really cool to talk about voting as like a thing that everyone does as like a big moment, but voting is a habit. Voting is a muscle. You've got to strengthen the muscle and the more elections you vote in, legally of course, the stronger that muscle gets. Show up, cast your vote. Even more so than on a presidential election, your vote really makes a difference. Second thing I would say is show up to local government. Um, and local party politics. It can be really boring, but especially while we're still in this like weird quasi-pandemic stage where a lot of stuff is still virtual or hybrid, virtual and in-person, go. Tune into the city hall meeting. Tune into the community board meeting. Go to that school board meeting. 
80% of the tenor of debate of what's covered is determined by who's in the room. So simply by being there, you are making a really meaningful difference, especially if you are younger, if you are a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're you know, not traditionally engaged in politics, your presence will really change how the topics are covered. So don't be afraid to just like show up, play Candy Crush on your phone in the back row and listen in as things get heated. It'll be fun. I gotta say it's like the best uh, reality TV IRL. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely true. I mean, I've been to some community board meetings and there's some really crazies out there, but they come all the time, those people, you know, and then they dominate the conversation and the debate and really more of us should show up and also fill that public sphere. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? The next generation of democratic leadership coming from red states, from blue states, from purple states, getting to see what the future looks like. If democracy survives another four to five years, our 2026, 2028 class of governors and senators and congressional candidates is going to knock your socks off. If Mari Manoogian in Michigan decides to run for governor, if Anna Eskamani decides to run for senator, if Lena Hidalgo decides to run for whatever she wants, if you know any one of the 500 plus folks we've elected over the last four years decides to climb to higher office or to run for higher office, they will absolutely astound you. So I am hopeful that if democracy survives, we are going to have such amazing leadership taking us into the next 20, 30, 40 years, in part because of what the Run for Something community has done over the last four and what we'll do over the next, hopefully, decades. We just got to get there. <laughs> yes, we do. I hope we get there. I hope that somehow HR1 will pass. I hope that all of these voter suppression bills, you know, uh, get litigated away or don't get approved somehow if there's still a bill. Uh, and we'll see. Like you said, the next 18 months are pivotal, but I hope you're right. Even if those bills continue to pass and, you know, will continue to suppress the voters, we still have the winning candidates in office and they'll make a difference. I hope so. Thank you very much for all the work that you do. And thank you for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you for having me. This was a really fun conversation. In a week where we saw the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the devastation in Haiti, and more hate crimes against Asians in New York, this conversation was a real bright spot. I have to say I felt pretty depressed and hopeless about humanity, so to hear Amanda's list of achievements in helping elect progressives in local and state offices was so encouraging. It's exciting that Run for Something is lowering the barrier for more diverse voices to win elections and in doing so to make better governance a reality for all of us. And most of all, we should all heed her advice and get involved. Show up at a local town hall meeting, volunteer for a candidate, and maybe run for office yourself. Next week, our guest is Lala Wu. She's co-founder and executive director of Sister District, an organization that works to elect Democrats to state legislatures. We talk about building progressive power at the state level, the various opportunities for winning in upcoming elections, and supporting candidates to win and then to serve effectively. We all came together and really coalesced around this idea that State legislatures are critically, critically important venues of power 
in building democratic ability to get what we want to get done and unfortunately really overlooked. And so we do a lot of things now to build progressive power in state legislatures. That's our mission and our goal. State legislatures are really where the rubber hits the road when it comes to the policy that actually impacts people's lives. Of course, a lot of attention is given to what doesn't happen at the federal level. But that is not actually where the most impactful policy gets made. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak, and our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Zach Travis. Listen to us every week on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.